inviting him up. Here are a few notable things to share about Pastor Dale. Pastor Dale graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He served a congregation in central Mississippi, and then for 15 years, pastored Olive Street Presbyterian Church in nearby Coatesville. Dale retired in 2020. He and his wife Jody have four children and six grandchildren and continue to call Olive Street Presbyterian their church home. Welcome, Dale. Allow me to read today's passage before he comes up to preach the word of God to us from 2 Timothy 1, chapter 1, 3 to 14. Um, his sermon will be titled, Prepare for the Worst to Offer the Best. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works and because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Good morning. Excuse me. I bring you greetings uh, from your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ at Olive Street Presbyterian Church, a fellow church in our presbytery, and uh, want to say also that several weeks ago, both during the adult Sunday school, you told some religious men, though not, though not godly men, who didn't believe in you, that they were wrong because they did not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Lord, by your grace, we don't want to be like that. So by the presence of your Spirit, help us to know the Scriptures and thereby to know your power. Build your church. Help us to be faithful. Amen.
as we serve Christ, it's important for us regularly to see how we are following the biblical priorities about what it means to be the church, to be faithful to God, uh, including, including here in the United States, uh, facing increasing persecution, which is already being faced acutely around the world. Uh, I, th I believe it's my conviction, and it's a conviction of a lot of American pastors, I, I think, more and more, to tell the people there's going to be lots and lots of persecution here, and we'll begin to have a taste of what a lot of the world is dealing with. So that's the kind of thing we need to examine as we, as we consider who we are as the church. Jesus has given us this wonderful, great opportunity uh, called the Great Commission. Um, and actually, it's not just an opportunity, it's, it's a command, isn't it? And people are lost in sin as we once were before we came to know Christ, lost in sin and misery, and they have many questions if they don't know the Lord, to answer the, they have many questions that they answer with the wrong answers. And we have the right answers, and we can say that humbly because they're from God, not from us. We have them because we're in Christ, by whom the Lord Jesus God unites our hearts, and so we should answer the world's questions, even though the world doesn't always want to hear our answers. Um, we need to prepare for the worst to offer the best. Paul is writing to Timothy, his young pastoral associate, who oversaw, among other things, the church that the Apostle Paul had planted in Ephesus. But also, Paul is writing to the church today. He's writing to you and he's writing to me. So how are we supposed to live? Well, if you look around you with Jesus' eyes, as Jesus, as Jesus looked, he makes you alert to certain priorities that he had, which because we're united to him, we're to have as well. When Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew said, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the way people are, again, is they're full of bad answers unless they see the truth in Christ. They are harassed and helpless. Even sometimes when they're in public, non-Christians may be having miserable lives, but they will try hard not to show it. But we live in a fallen world. So as we answer this question, how shall we live, um, I want to give a sample, uh, I want to give a sample question that many people have that they don't know how to answer. And that is, why do people die? Why do people die? Why is there 
why do so many people who don't know God often dread death? Just after, just after Christmas, a couple days after Christmas, um, my wife had to be rushed to the hospital because what we thought was a cold turned into be acute pneumonia. It was inhabiting both her lungs. She was developing blood clots in her lungs. And um, I saw my wife almost die. So this question, you know, for me as a Christian is how do, why do people die? Why is there death? And while we were, while she was in the hospital, Jody was in a room next to somebody else who did die while they were there. And I remember coming down the hall to visit my wife at Chester County Hospital and seeing this family who had just gotten the news that their family member had died walking out of the ward weeping. That's what we deal with in this life. So why do people die? And here again is one of those questions. It's a major question that the church can answer with God's truth. Where does death come from? In the 17th century, Ralph Venning was a pastor in London. And in 1665, in the middle of that century, the Great Plague came. And out of 400,000 people in London, 100,000 died. Venning wrote a book about it called The Plague of Plagues. Does that sound familiar? The Pandemic of Pandemics. No one, people in London are just like people all over the rest of the world. No one wants to die of a plague. But the issue is actually bigger than that, isn't it? Um, I have a rather uh, certain type of sense of humor that doesn't necessarily goes over peop- go over people's heads, but it sort of goes by them sometimes. But I'm one of those people who happens to enjoy... Uh, when, I, when I go through my email, something called the Babylon Bee. You may be familiar with it. It's a Christian satire email. And when you, when you open it, you see a series of fake headlines about things. And I, I love these. Um, is again, again, the plague is about a lot more than just the plague. And so I remember back in late 2021, this headline appeared in the Babylon Bee for the day. Alarming new study finds that everyone who got COVID will die at some point. That's everybody. That's everybody. From time to time, I see people's obituaries in the in especially in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that begins something like this. Holocaust survivor, age 102, dies. And you can shorten that. You can just say the, the, the kernel of the message there in that obituary is that somebody who survived later on died. You can say a survivor doesn't 
a, a survivor doesn't survive ultimately. The point is that when we speak to people about this question of death from Scripture, we need to say, everyone dies. Everyone is going to die. Why is this? Well, back to Ralph Venning, the pastor in London, the subtitle of his book, The Plague of Plagues, is this. It's the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. As God said to Adam and Eve, and by extension to all of us in the human race, if you sin, you will surely die. And you think of all the causes of death. You could have a long list. COVID, heart attack, old age, stroke, accident, suicide. Really, those are not the main causes of death. They're only secondary causes that God in his providence uses because the primary cause of death is the righteous creator's just response to unrighteousness. All have sinned. Excuse me, I'm going to grab my water. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. In Romans 5, the apostle tells us that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and so death spread to all men, all people, because all sinned. When more Christians in the West centuries ago spoke Latin often, one of the things that they reminded each other of in Latin is this, memento mori, which means remember, you must die. Use your life wisely for the gospel. My neighbor, Lee, across the street from me, who's a retired Philadelphia firefighter, is going through a period of fear right now. He's, He's in his late 70s. He's suffering some kind of blood cancer. He's lost, recently lost his mother. And he had a dog. He was living by himself, and he had this dog, and the dog had to be put to sleep. And he told me, he's opening up to me now, he says, you know, in the night, without having to think about it, I can feel it coming. It's inevitable. I'm going to die. Pray for me as I minister to my friend. In the, uh, the New Anglican Catechism, to be a Christian, here's how question and answer five go. Can you save yourself from the way of sin and death? And the answer is no, because sin has corrupted my conscience, confused my mind, and captured my will. Some of you are familiar with Christianity Explored and Rico Tice. He said when the Lord first got his attention about the things of God and uh, the fact that we all die, etc., etc., he heard a bishop in South Africa preach that sinners without God are going to hell. 
This is part of the gospel message. It's not all of the message, but it's part of it. You could say it this way. This sounds harsh, perhaps, but it's true. God is the only righteous executioner. He's the only righteous executioner. Will we communicate this and the rest of the gospel, the bad news and the good news, all of it true, to people around us? Certainly it was part of Paul's message. One of his, it was one of his answers to the world's questions. So we have these questions that people in the world are asking. Some of you remember when you were asking those questions and answering them wrongly, before you came to Jesus. So that's the first point. The second point is this, the life, the life of the gospel. Can anyone beat death? Can anyone abolish death? The answer is yes, because this righteous executioner, the holy God, is also the righteous redeemer. And he loves and he saves sinners. And you see that here in our text, in 2 Timothy verses 9 and 10. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the life who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The great physician's cure and answer, true answer to death among sinful people is redemption in his Son, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead so that as we trust in him, we too will also rise. This gospel is so good. It's so wonderful. This is why in verse 13, for example, Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words. You could translate that healthy words sane words. That's the gospel. And then he says in verse 14 to Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The great missionary theologian J.H. Bavink years ago said about the gospel that it's the great word that must be said. The great word that must be said, only in Christ Jesus, who are headed for death and destruction, I mean, excuse me, only in Christ Jesus can lost sinners who are headed for death and destruction, can people find what Oswald Chambers says, a life of order and sanity and holiness. Praise his name. So to offer the world the best this year and next year until the time whenever he calls each one of us home, we must declare 
the answer to this question, why does everyone die and how can sinners rise from the dead and lots and lots of other questions. You know, all of us lost, straying from the Lord are born with these questions. We, we don't always think about them directly, but, you know, about the time you hit adolescence, you're asking these questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I headed? Only in Jesus Christ do we find the true answer. And Christ has called his disciples to be faithful ambassadors, to tell the world lovingly and truly be reconciled to God. Paul Tripp says that these ambassadors that God calls us to be are those who, who represent God's message and use God's methods and exemplify God's character. So, we know what we must do now to be a faithful church. But there's, there's a catch. Not from God. But Jesus has put us in what he calls an adulterous and sinful generation. That's in Mark chapter 8. Some people who are not Christians don't want to hear the right answers, even when they're told lovingly. Some people are opposed to those answers, and they will go to great lengths to prevent Christ's ambassadors from sharing those answers. That's called persecution. Do not be ashamed. Excuse me. So that brings us to our third point, which is spiritual opposition. So certain people who are not Christians will persecute people who share the gospel and people who believe it. How should we respond? How should we respond when the world persecutes us? And again, it's only going to get worse in the United States. We're going to begin to understand what a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are going through and have been going through for years. In verse 8, Paul gives the answer to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our God, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In this verse, verse 8, Paul gives Timothy and us two ways that we're supposed to respond to spiritual opposition. First of all, and these, these responses, by the way, go hand in hand. The first response, again, is do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In other words, you can put it like this, be proud of the gospel. That's what the Bible teaches us. Don't be, don't be proud and selfish and arrogant about yourself, but be proud of the gospel and the, the God you serve. David says, my soul, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. 
In Jeremiah 9.24, a prophet who for many years underwent persecution, even speaking to his own people in Israel, Jeremiah said, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Galatians 6.14, the apostle says to the Galatian church, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And if you boast in the Lord, beginning with your heart, then he will provide what you need to share the gospel. If you'll look again at verse 7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let me give you a couple of short anecdotes. <clears throat> I, was raised, I was raised by Christian parents to love Jesus, but I didn't love Jesus until my mid-20s. And I'd been away from home. I'd been uh, going to school in Richmond, Virginia. And um, the Lord got a hold of me through many circumstances. And I realized one day that if I was a Christian like I said I was, there were certain things that needed to be a part of my life. One of them was to find a church home. So one Sunday morning, I'm going through my neighborhood outside Virginia Commonwealth University, and I'm carrying my big old Schofield reference Bible in my hand. And uh, I, wasn't, I, didn't, I didn't want people to see me carrying a Bible. Uh, I knew it would cause reactions. But it was early in Sunday morning, and I was just walking through this neighborhood looking for a church, looking for any church where I could worship the Lord. And a friend of mine from my student days came out of the back of his girlfriend's apartment where he had been staying the night with a bag of garbage to put in the trash can, and he looked at me and he said, what is that in your hand? And I said, well, it's a Bible. He said, what are you doing with that? And I said, well, I, you know, I've become a Christian, and I believe it's important to find a church home, and that's what I'm going to do. Well, I won't tell you the rest of the story about my friend Monty, but he started to visit me in my apartment. He was so perplexed, and he became a Christian. And he started to find a church home. And I'm really thankful that God gave me holy boldness. Likewise, uh, even before I was a committed Christian, I was reading my Bible one night in my dorm room, and a friend of one of my dorm mates came up to me and he said, why are you reading that? And I said, because. And these words are from God, not from me, because I was not living a good testimony at the time. I said, because I believe it. Because I believe it. So will we bless the world with the gospel? Will we bless the world with controversial words? Hugh Hewitt, years ago, wrote an interesting book indicting the American church 
for, for testimonial cowardice called the embarrassed believer. And he said, there's certain words that you can say in public and to people who are not Christians, which can get you in trouble, words and phrases. And he gave a list of uh, 12 things you can say uh, about spiritual things from the easiest to say to the hardest, religious words and phrases. And you'll see as I read the list to you that the closer you get to the cross, the more you boast in the Lord. And the more you boast, the more controversy you provoke. Number 12, spirituality. You can still get away with that pretty much. Uh, number 11 is belief system. Number 10 is religion. Number 9 is faith. Number 8 is the divine. And here's where it starts to get a little bit dicey. Number 7 is God. Number 6 is the uh, Lord. Number 5 is the Spirit. Number 4 is the Holy Spirit. Number 3, Christ. Number 2, Jesus, and at the top of the list, the one that can get you most in trouble, according to Mr. Hewitt, my Savior, my Savior. But we've got to say these words. They're part of the gospel witness. And if we boast in the Lord, he will help us to say these words. I remember uh, in the last few months, I was reading, uh, watching a movie, rather, where a mafia boss is speaking to one of his henchmen, and he is, um, he's trying to get this man to tell him what's going on with another man, but the, the man that the mafia boss is interviewing said uh, that he didn't want to squeal on him. And his boss looks at him and says, now is not the time not to say. Now is not the time not to say. Be proud of the gospel. Paul says, do not be ashamed, as we read earlier in the worship. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. And we go back to verse 8, later in the verse, and we see that Paul says be, that we should be prepared to suffer. Share in suffering, he says to Timothy, and by extension, he says to us. And in verses 11 and 12, he also talks about suffering for the gospel. Frederick Ferrer, uh, from the 19th century, wrote a book on the Apostle Paul, and he said, from conversion on, from conversion on, Paul's life was one continuous martyrdom. One of the best reminders, as I've already said, one of the best things that a pastor can repeatedly say to his congregation is, I believe, persecution is coming. Will we boast in the Lord? Will we be honest about the truth that sets us free? To offer the best, you must prepare for the worst. So the question then is, are we preparing for the worst? as American Christians. Many of the world, Christians in the world, are already prepared for the worst, and they're serving faithfully, many of them. 
Some of you read the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Some of you support that ministry. A few issues ago, and three issues actually it was, Cole Richards, who's the president of the organization, the ministry, uh, wrote a three-part article on how to prepare, how to prepare for persecution. Um, he did that because he had become concerned, you know, he's an American. He said, more and more when I talk with my brothers and sisters in Christ, here in the United States, the word that comes to mind is unprepared. Unprepared. So, how can we prepare? Well, Cole Richards says, of the three ways, the first one is this. Uh, decide the things that are non-negotiable, the things that you will not let go of as a Christian, no matter what happens to you. You decide what's non-negotiable. You nurture your relationship with the Lord so that you can stand faithful. Don't neglect the means of grace. Never back off from what's crucial. Identify the things you will do, you will continue to do as a Christian at any cost. Jesus said, <clears throat> scolding some people who called themselves, at least they're his almost disciples, but they wanted the bread and fish more than spiritual things. He said, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage in John 6, says, Christ tells us to work not for bread that perishes, but for bread that endures eternally. He wants us to find food and satisfaction for our souls. He provides that food abundantly in himself, but we must diligently seek it. How do we do that? Ryle continues, we must read our Bibles like men digging for hidden treasure. We must pray like men contending with a deadly enemy. We must take our whole hearts to God's house to worship Him with brothers and sisters in the faith and hear Him like those who are listening to the reading of a will. We must fight daily against sin in the world and the devil like those who fight for liberty and must conquer or become slaves. You can include in there, although Ryle doesn't, although I know that as an Anglican who was conservative, he valued the Lord's Supper. We must take the sacraments. And I, I'm going to share with you something about the Book of Church Order. If you've never opened the Book of Church Order, um, it's not leisure reading. It's not fun to read, but there is one paragraph in that book which is almost poetry to me, and that is the chapter, I think it's 58, where the BCO talks about the benefits of taking the communion by faith in Christ. Oh, it's so sweet. You should read that. So Ryle says this is what we must do if we want to find Christ and be found in Him. 
This is how we work for bread that doesn't perish. This is the secret of making progress in our souls. You need to make progress in your soul if you're facing opposition. There were two men out west somewhere, two cowboys who were standing talking uh, at the edge of a field of very high weeds. And they noticed as they looked out at the weeds just a short distance away that the weeds were moving like something alive was in there, and they're wondering if it was a snake. And they walked carefully, and they looked down into the weeds, and they found this little clearing. And in the clearing was this curious combat that was going on. A tarantula, you know, one of those big hairy spiders that they have out west, was fighting a big toad. And they would fight, and then the toad would pull away from the tarantula and go into the weeds and find a certain weed and eat part of it and then rush back to the fight and then fight some more and then go back to the weeds to get restored and so on and so forth. And finally, one of these cowboys grew impatient. He wanted to see which would win. And he said, get in there. He said to the toad, get in there and fight. Stop taking breaks to eat. So the toad hopped away from the weed he'd been eating to continue the combat. And this cowboy ripped up the weed and threw it way off in the distance. In a few minutes, the toad came back. He's hopping, he's hopping frantically, trying to find the weed. Couldn't find it. After a minute, he rolled over and fell dead. And the men felt bad because they realized the weed made the toad immune to the spider's poison. Now, there's a lesson there for us Christians in the world. If this life if in this life of spiritual conflict, if you don't regularly read your Bible, you don't regularly pray, including with others, if you don't regularly have worship with other Christians, etc., you'll become weak, you'll become malnourished, you'll become shriveled up in your soul and more and more susceptible to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, the first of the three ways to be prepared for persecution so that we can suffer like Paul did with the gospel is don't neglect the means of grace. The second of those three things that Cole Richards wrote in the magazine is this, keep the real war in mind. The real war is not politics. The real war is not economics. The real war, and maybe I need to say this in a hushed tone, is not a week ago, will the eagles win? The real war, the real war is spiritual. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what our prayers need to concern themselves with most of all. Not that we don't pray about other things, but it's about this war that's going on. 
as the church, we need to be praying. Here's what John Piper says in, um, in his book about missions. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness when we pray is due largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for sandwiches to be brought to us in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of God advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. The one who gives the power gets the glory. Thus, prayer safeguards the supremacy of God in evangelism while linking us with endless endless grace for every need. So we should keep the real war in mind. And then finally, the third thing that Cole Richard says in preparing for persecution is basically know the history of Christian faithfulness and pass it on to your children. Um, If you don't know anything at all about the doctrine of providence, you should study up on that. Know your church history. Charles Colson, years ago before he died, says it is not inappropriate for Christian moms and dads to read sections from Fox's Book of Martyrs to their children. Pass along the testimonies of faithful Christians down through the years. So that's, those are the three ways that we prepare ourselves for persecution. We have good news for our adulterous and sinful generation, which is the same generation. These are the last days, too, that Paul and Timothy worked in, and we must preach and talk in urgent tones about God's greatness and glory. We must preach and talk about sin and judgment. We must talk about the dreadfulness of spending eternity without God in hell. We must preach that God forgives through His Son, Jesus Christ, and brings us into fellowship with Himself. We must prepare ourselves to be faithful when persecution comes and increases. Now, maybe most of you here, I trust, are disciples of Jesus Christ, and I'm saying these things to challenge me and to challenge you in your walk of faith and to build you up. It is a great blessing to be one of God's ambassadors, but, and I hope this is true as well, maybe some of you, some of you are not disciples of Christ. And maybe you're sitting here and you've been watching us worship and you're hearing this sermon and you feel like you're on the outside looking in. 
you don't know the Lord. The message that I've described, the commitment that I've commended, the good news, at least at this point, is alien and strange to you. But you need to hear it. Let me assure you, I remember what it was like, feeling like I was on the outside looking in. There was a time, there was a time when even as growing up as a Christian, going up in a Christian home, that I found the gospel offensive. But as Christians shared the Bible with me <clears throat> and prayed with me, as they talked about sin and death and eternal life in Christ, God, by His Spirit and His Word, brought me to a great realization, and I ran to Christ. And you can too. I say to you now, those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus, this is for you too, this Word. Without Jesus Christ, you were harassed and helpless. You don't have any hope except from God, the one who created you. He offers you through his son forgiveness, righteousness, new life, adoption into his family. He gives you work to do. And so I say to you, if anyone is here this morning who doesn't know the Lord, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to him. He will hear you. Come to him. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to bless you. His son says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have brought those of us who are your people, by your grace, you've brought us into a new way. You've set our feet on solid ground. You've given us hope. You've given us assurance. Your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, Lord. And now what we have looked at in this letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to us, all the generations of your people, Nurture, challenge, convict, bless our hearts with it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.